0: supply all your needs according to His riches and glory in Christ Jesus. It's actually singular in the Greek, and we'll talk about that. But the God's provision for our need is, uh, is His faithfulness to accomplish. And it's not according to our lust, it's according to His riches and glory in Christ Jesus. It's not all of our wants, it's not all of our selfishness, it's not all of the things that uh, we think we are entitled to, but it's the need that He has designed And it is His glory in Christ Jesus to provide. And so these are the things that uh, we'll be dealing with here today. Before we get started, let's take a moment for silent prayer because God is spirit. He must be worshipped in spirit and in truth. Let's make sure we're filled with the Holy Spirit, that our sins are dealt with, confessed before the Lord, and we're humble under the authority of His Word. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we do come before you this morning thankful for the privilege and blessing that you continue to supply for us, Father. That uh, the Word of God goes forth line upon line, precept upon precept, here a little, there a little. I thank you that we can present ourselves uh, before you as workmen, needing not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the Word of truth. So Father, bless our time of study and open our eyes, teach us and feed us. We thank you in Jesus Christ's name, amen. Alright, so really in dealing with this grace-giving gratitude, uh, we're we're in a section here from verse 10 down to verse 19 where Paul is expressing his thrill at the Philippians' provision. Not for the money itself but for the profit which increases to their account. The fact that they are the instruments that God uses, the channel of blessing, the channel of uh, provision. And so we've had several uh, points of study under this and Really where we've been here lately is centering on, if I have the right slide here, we'll try this one. He's happy to have the money even though he can get along without it. He talks about this here in verses 14 through 17. Uh, Obviously he says in verse 12, I know how to get along with humble means, I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. And this is what underlies the, the promise or the principle of I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. And so He's doing, he's enduring. He's, he's thriving. He's doing just fine. But when their gift does arrive, now He is abounding. Now He is super abounding related to their provision. and uh, And so He says, nevertheless, verse 14, you have done well to share with me in my affliction. And this then becomes the privilege that we have as believers in the church age to love one another, to serve one another, to suffer with one another, to identify with one another in fellowship during these seasons where we have these, uh, these difficulties. So uh, we understand he doesn't need it, but he's thankful. And he's thankful because not just for the money's sake, but that they are fellowshipping with him in this. And it's a soon quenoneo application to fellowship together in, uh, in this affliction. I think the principle comes in verse 17, not that I seek the gift itself, but I seek for the profit which increases to your account. And this is how uh, God's provision in grace in the spiritual realm is totally backwards from how uh, human beings typically think, uh, how the world works in earthly terms. And uh, in earthly terms, when one person gives another person money, then it's the recipient that's profiting. The, the, the one who receives the money from the other person is profiting. The person who's giving the money has, has just decreased his amount of money. He's the one that has suffered loss while the person receiving money has suffered, has has received a gain. That's how it works in the earthly realm. But in God's record keeping, it's more blessed to give than to receive. And so in providing the gift, as Paul says, in providing the gift that the profit increases to the Philippians account, it is to their eternal benefit. They're laying up treasures in heaven. When you're giving to the needy, you are lending to the Lord, it says in, in the book of Proverbs. And so there's principles at work here for how do we lay up treasures in heaven? So we had it in the subpoints. I won't go back through all of this, but synchronized fellowship is sun Quinane'o. And uh, fellowship sharing is a matter of giving and receiving. See, when you're giving, that's a, that's a priestly function. We're going to talk about that today it is a priestly function to give as unto the lord and it is a fellowship function to give it's it's so different than just paying the bills all right it is uh, it is beyond a financial transaction it is a synchronized fellowship in the realm of grace giving it is the giver that eternally profits in the heavenly ledger and so if you weren't here for these classes or if you need to refresh on what we talked about uh, look these up. Look up Proverbs nineteen seventeen. Look up Matthew six nineteen through twenty one, where Jesus contrasts it there, and he says, "Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you." Look at Luke fourteen, where it talks about hosting those who cannot repay you, because your reward is is with the Father. 1 Timothy six seventeen through nineteen talks about the riches of this world as opposed to the next. And uh, then Hebrews ten thirty four, And those are the, uh, the, the verses there. All right. Which brings us now to point five and what we're going to be dealing with here today. Verses 18 and 19. Paul's final comment regarding the Philippian gift places this aspect of local church ministry firmly within the priesthood function of the body of Christ. This aspect of local church ministry. Grace giving. Grace giving is not your soldier function. Grace giving is not your ambassadorial function. Grace giving is your priestly function in the body of Christ. These things that we've discussed many times over the years—the fact that every believer has these three functions—right? We we may have a variety of gifts, we have a variety of ministries, we have a variety of effects, but the things that we have the same include every one of us as a believer priest. Every one of us is an ambassador for Christ. Every one of us is a soldier in the angelic conflict. And so those things are all the same for all of us here. In, uh, if you're a born-again believer in Jesus, you have these functions. A priestly function, an ambassadorial function, and a soldier function. And when we see this language here in verses 18 and 19, clearly it's priestly language. He says, I have received everything in full and have an abundance. I am abounding. Same language from verse 12 we read a little bit ago. I have received everything in full and have an abundance. I am amply supplied, having received from Epaphroditus what you have sent. And what does he call it? He calls it a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. See, and that's the point that he's driving at. And we don't know the kind of currency they shipped. We don't know if it was gold or silver uh, you know, bullion of any type. We don't know if it was coinage of any type. Coins were very common back then. You know, were they Greek coins? Were they Roman coins? You know, were they, was it the sesterius or, or the denarius? or, or what, what, We don't know. And it doesn't really matter how much they sent. Was it a talent of gold or what was it? Well, Paul said it was a sweet smelling savor, that it was an acceptable sacrifice, a, a fragrant aroma. And this, this is priestly language, language from the Old Testament, language from Leviticus, language that br- it gets brought into the New Testament related to us in the body of Christ. And my God will supply all your need according to His riches and glory in Christ Jesus. And there's a play on words there from verse 18 to verse 19, because being amply supplied means I am filled. Plerao, I have been filled. And when he takes that, I have been filled, he says, and God will fill you. God will fill every need of yours because they have filled him. And there's a a corollary there we want to identify and make sure we're clear on uh, before we uh, finish this book. All right. So under this then, understand it's priestly language, okay? Okay. And so start thinking when you're giving, when you're supporting this ministry or when you're supporting other ministries or when you're supporting anything as unto the Lord. Missionaries or whatever, Voice of the Martyrs or any, anything you're supporting as unto the Lord. Just stop and say first and foremost this is a priestly function. And then secondly it's a financial transaction, right? Keep it in that order. First and foremost it is a priestly function. Then after that it's a You know, it's a financial thing, okay? So point A, here's the three verbs. I am receiving, I am abounding, I have been filled. These are the three verbs that we have in verse 18. I am receiving. And this one is a bit idiomatic because, uh, and, and it's so much so that in the New American Standard they actually rendered it in the past tense. I have received even though the verb itself is a present tense verb, I am receiving. And it's an idiomatic expression that speaks of issuing a receipt. In fact, this is the language of receipts in the first century. If, uh, you, know, if you delivered a, a, a shipment to somebody and you expected your receipt, what he would write out would be apeco. echo would be what he would write out. I am receiving, meaning uh, this is your receipt. I have received everything. And so you would take your receipt and you have your documentation that you need in case later there is a, a, a dispute. If he tries to claim later that he didn't receive, you can show your, your receipt and say, no, you wrote it out here. You wrote out App echo," uh, Just as Jesus used it in Matthew chapter 6 when he talks about they have the reward in full, that they have been issued their receipt for what they have been doing. All right. And so we have that. Uh, I don't want to repeat everything we did on Wednesday night, but those, those, those three usages in Matthew 6 are critical, all right? And so I'll just real quick, I'll take two minutes, promise. Two minutes to do what we took about 20 minutes to do on Wednesday. Matthew chapter 6, you've got giving in verse 2, you've got praying in, uh, in verse 5, and you've got fasting in verse 16. And in all three illustrations you can you can do these things with wrong motives. And so practicing your righteousness before men. So beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Otherwise you have no reward with your father who is in heaven. So when you give to the poor, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets so that they may be honored by men. Truly I say to you, app echo app echo the verb that we're looking at here, they have their reward in full. This is their receipt. so if you want to impress somebody, that's your receipt <laughs> That's all the reward you're getting, and so you're putting on a show to impress somebody and maybe you succeed. great, wonderful, you impress somebody. Okay? That's all the reward you're getting. You have the receipt. So at the Bema seat, there won't be anything more on top of that. In fact, you're going to watch it go up in flames. It's wood, hay, and stubble that's going to be burned up at the judgment seat of Christ. The only reward you're getting is the Ooh, that came when whoever it was was impressed and they thought, wow, you're you're quite a giver or you're quite a, a, a prayer because praying is the Usage in verse 5, some people like to show off in their prayers and impress people with how holy they are by these flowery prayers or their fasting and how much they're suffering for Jesus based upon how miserable they make themselves look in their disheveled fa- uh, fasting circumstance. So those are the issues there. So Jesus used the same idiom and uh, common in the in the uh, ancient world for a receipt uh, of uh, of things. Alright, I am receiving meaning here's your receipt, I've, I've got everything you've sent, and I am abounding. I am abounding. Like uh, he said earlier when he said, I know how to be humbled, I know how to abound. I know how to get along with humble means, I know how to live in prosperity. And so he's received everything they sent, and he is abounding. And then he says, I have been filled. I have been filled. And this is even more idiomatic than the first expression with I have been filled, well filled with what? You've been filled with, uh, it's, it's play ra'o and so we're accustomed to play ra'o for things like the filling of the Holy Spirit or uh, being filled with the fullness of God or other things that we study related to filling. Well the only other place where we have anything comparable to this in, uh, in 418 where it's kind of rendered, I am amply supplied. That's kind of how they decided to translate it there. I am amply supplied. Really it's, I have been filled. I have been filled. Perfect tense means completed action with present ongoing results. Passive voice means he didn't do the filling. Somebody else did the filling. It was done to him. I have been filled and continue to be full in in this. And the only and, and, but it doesn't say with what, what was he filled with when they sent when they sent money, when they offered up a sweet-smelling savor, you know was, he wasn't filled with the money. <laughs> he didn't swallow all the coins, okay but they sent the gift, they were offering a sweet-smelling savor before the father's throne of grace, and Paul was filled. what was he filled with? I believe. It's a uh, throwback all the way to chapter 1. I think he's drawing now all the way back from something he introduced at the very beginning of the epistle in Philippians 1.11, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. This is what he was filled with. They were bearing fruit and Paul was thrilled to eat the fruit. (laughs) He was being filled with their fruit. Say, you ever think about that? Ever think about who's eating all the fruit that you're bearing? You know, what do you do? Do you you produce all this fruit and then just do nothing with it? What do you do with all this fruit that you produce? Say, what did Israel do with all those animals they slaughtered? They ate them, most of them, all right? Not the whole burnt offerings. The whole burnt offerings were, were consumed entirely. But the other offerings, they got to eat. With the priests and the Levites and the worshippers, and they could learn the Word of God while they're feasting over the uh, the sacrifices, so I am receiving I am abounding, I have been filled with the fruit of righteousness that they have borne in supporting him all right, secondly now point b, a fragrant aroma a fragrant aroma has a tremendous old testament New and New Testament significance. A fragrant aroma has a tremendous Old Testament and New Testament significance. This language is not accidental. This language is loaded with significance all the way back through the Old Testament, starting in Genesis, going into Exodus, 17 times in Leviticus, a very concentrated 11 times in Numbers 28 and 29, even 8 times in Song of Solomon. The, The Bible has a lot to say with aromas, talking about uh, uh, pleasant aromas and nasty aromas, all right? The things that are well-pleasing and then the things that are odious, the things that are uh, that uh, that stink and the things that the father wants to embrace versus the things that the father wants to push away and hold at a distance. And I love it. I love how simple this is. This is, this is uh, the usage of language that the smallest of children can understand. <laughs> I think... The youngest of children understand good smells and bad smells, and uh, we get taught different things about different smells from our youngest years in our childhood, right? And God does the same thing. He uses these things that are foundational to the human experience, things that smell great and things that smell awful, and things that you want near you and things you want far from you. And uh, He uses that language for the sweet-smelling savor of sacrifice, starting with Genesis 8. You know, what had God been doing? He destroyed the whole world, right? There's Noah's flood in Genesis 6, 7, and 8. And so you think God is uh, sorry that he made man. He's inflicting wrath globally. And, uh, and yet, what did they do? When Noah loaded the ark, what did he do? He put the animals on two by two so that they could repopulate. But then he took other animals for priestly function. He took seven clean animals, seven clean birds. He was going to offer sacrifices, which I think is marvelous. Uh, you think, you know, why do you load up all these animals? Why do they survive the flood? So that the first thing you do after the flood is you kill them. <laughs> you could have just left them off the boat and they would have died. And, you know, wouldn't that? It? No. The point is they survive the flood so that they can be in priestly function, they can be offered before the Lord as an item of praise. All right. So uh, Genesis 8, of course the flood is 6, 7, and 8, and the waters uh, go down, and uh, Noah's going to build an altar. So, uh, verse... 17, bring out with you every living thing of all flesh that is with you, birds and animals and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that they may breed abundantly on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out and his sons and his wife and his son's wives with him, every beast, every creeping thing, every bird, everything that moves on the earth went out by their families from the ark. "'Then Noah built an altar to the Lord "'and took every clean animal of every clean bird "'and offered burnt offerings on the altar. "'And the Lord smelled the soothing aroma.'" This is the language. This is the language in Hebrew. Of course, the Greek Septuagint uses the same language we're looking at in Philippians, the uh, soothing aroma. "'And the Lord said to himself, "'I will never again curse the ground on account of man, "'for the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth.'" I will never again destroy every living thing as I have done. And so this is part of the Noahic covenant, the promise of the rainbow, and uh, these things that come here. So we have animal sacrifice. Animals are dying. The the aroma goes up. God smells. And He is mindful of His covenant promises. Priestly function uh, operates in this way. Mindful of His covenant promises. And this is what happens. He smells the soothing aroma and he reminds himself of these covenant promises. Uh, there's a human example in, in uh, Genesis 27. Jacob and Esau. Of course, Isaac is an old man and he's not seeing too well, but he can still smell. And uh, he's a little bit suspicious about uh, this boy that's passing himself off as his brother, <laughs> and uh anyway so uh he came close and kissed him this is uh are you really my son esau that's verse 24 he, he suspects that something is up when he comes in acting like he's esau and uh, isaac says come close that i may feel you my son whether you are really my son esau or not you know clearly he's suspicious so Jacob came close to Isaac, his father, and he felt him and said, the voice is the voice of Jacob, but the hands are the hands of Esau. And we know how this happened because his mother got in on the act and helped him disguise himself with, with uh, sheepskins and so forth. He did not recognize him because his hands were hairy like his brother Esau's hands, so he blessed him. But he's still suspicious. And he said, are you really my son Esau? And he said, I am. So he said, bring it to me, I will eat of my son's game that I may bless you. And he brought it to him and he ate and also brought him wine and he drank. His father Isaac said to him, please come close and kiss me, my son. So he came close and kissed him. And when he smelled the smell of his garments, he blessed him and said, see, the smell of my son is like the smell of a field which the Lord has blessed. So he even smells like Esau, part of the disguise and part of the procedures here that uh, Rebecca had had organized. All right. there's a human use, but even in the human use, we have things that are comparable to what we have in the divine usages where God himself is smelling something that's pleasing to him, something that's according to his design, something that then invokes a blessing. This is what happens here. He smells his son and it invokes a blessing. That's a principle. All right. And then for the rest of these, um, Exodus twenty-nine. The rest of these are all going to be in a priestly function. In Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers. Exodus twenty-nine. Wow, where do we start here? Um, could start with verse 10 let's just pick it up in verse 15 you shall also take the one ram and aaron and his sons shall lay their hands on the head of the ram that's identification you're laying your hand on his head and you shall slaughter the ram and shall take its blood and sprinkle it around on the altar you shall cut the ram into its pieces and wash its entrails and its legs and put them with its pieces and its head you shall offer up in smoke the whole ram on the altar. It is a burnt offering to the Lord. It is a soothing aroma, an offering by fire to the Lord. So I say soothing aroma. And the idea of soothing, meaning propitiating, satisfying, pleasing to, uh, to the one who's smelling it. And all of this is, of course, a picture of, of our Savior who was the propitiation for our sins, the one with whom the Father was eternally, infinitely satisfied. Verse 25 as well, you shall take from their hands and offer them up in smoke on the altar on the burnt offering for a soothing aroma before the Lord. It is an offering by fire to the Lord. Verse 41, the other lamb you shall offer at twilight. And so what's the other lamb? Well, You get two of these. Verse 38 says, "...now this is what you shall offer on the altar, two one-year-old lambs each day continuously." These are national sacrifices. It's not every Jewish person in the whole population of Israel has to give up two sheep a day. That's not going to happen, all right? But these are representative sacrifices that the nation offers up daily. So this is what you shall offer on the altar, two one-year-old lambs each day continuously. The one lamb you shall offer in the morning, the other lamb you shall offer at twilight. There shall be one-tenth of an ephah of fine flour mixed with one-fourth of a hin of beaten oil and one-fourth of a hin of wine for a drink offering with one lamb. And all of these procedures, you, know, you can get lost in this, you can get really lost in all of the, the detail and all, I'm thankful I'm not a, I can't follow a recipe to save my life. So, you know, this would have, I'd have been a terrible Levitical priest. But I, I can recognize, though, that there are patterns here that we fulfill in the church age, right? Because this, this fourth of a hint of wine as a drink offering, that goes with the animal that gets sacrificed. And Paul will use that language when he talks about his own death. He says, I'm being poured out as a, as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith. And so he uses this very concept here where the Philippians were bringing the meat and he was contributing the wine, the the drink offering that goes with that sacrifice. This is how our priesthood cooperates together as different believers operate with one another in the mutual priestly worship of what we're doing. All right, so a drink offering for one lamb. The other lamb you shall offer at twilight and shall offer it with the same grain offering, the same drink offering as in the morning for a soothing aroma an offering by fire to the Lord. It shall be a continual burnt offering throughout your generations at the doorway of the tent of meeting before the Lord where I will meet with you to speak with you there. You know, this fire was never to go out on the altar. The sacrifices were to be given continuously morning and evening throughout their generations. So we have it. Uh, 17 usages in Leviticus. And we don't have to necessarily read all those. I uh, arranged this ahead of time so you can see the search results here. And this kind of speeds up the process. You can see all of them there in Leviticus. Chapter 1, it's 9, 13, 17. Chapter 2, it's 2, 9, and 12. Chapter 3, it's 5, 16, Chapter 4 and verse 31, chapter 6 and verse 15, and 21. You have the list here. If you want a copy of the list, just email me, I'll send it to you. Or if you don't have the software, to search it yourself. Um, All those usages in Leviticus. There's some concentrated usages. Look at all these there in Numbers chapter 15. 3, 7, 10, 13, 14, and 24. Six times in that same chapter there in, uh, in Numbers 15. Likewise, 28 and 29. Man, there's a concentration there. In chapter 28, it's 2, 6, 8, 13, 14, 27, six uses. And in 29, it's 2, 6, 8, 13, 36. So five more uses there. are 11 sweet-smelling savers in Numbers 28 and Numbers 29. So if you want to do a study on sweet-smelling savers, there's a couple chapters to lock in on, okay? Make those your... your kind of the centrality of your study, and then, you know, take the other ones from elsewhere and, uh, and take a look at those. It makes a difference, all right? And it's helpful. And you'll see again and again and again the things that God smells please Him. It's a pleasure. He delights in them. It's, uh, there's a, a uh, it uses emotional language of ratzon, of a delight, of something you want to embrace, something you want to hug. Okay, God's a hugger in those things that he embraces, that he delights in, okay? And that language is significant because the delight is the antithesis of the abomination. The abomination is what he pushes far away. The abomination is what he wants, not even within reach. He wants it as far as, as he can push it. But the delight, the own, is what he embraces, what he draws close, we draw near by the blood of Christ because the Father delights in Christ. And that's the, the blessing, the access that we have is a delight through which we draw near. All right. So, um, 17 Levitical uses, uh, 11 uses in uh, Numbers 28 and 29... I don't know why I was counting on my fingers. I had it right there. 11 times in Numbers 28 and 29. Eight times in Song of Solomon. Eight times in Song of Solomon, right? And that's a romantic book. That's a book on marital love. That's a book on sex. That's a book on, on um, closeness between a man and a woman. And, uh, and there's fragrant aromas. There's pleasant smells. She wants to smell good for him. And uh, there's other language that gets applied there. There is an eschatological text in Ezekiel twenty. Yeah, by the way, don't read Song of Solomon is an interesting book. And um I might even teach it one day. Now that my mom's in heaven, I will probably teach it one day if uh if the Lord opens that door. Maybe maybe we'll make that a follow up to Proverbs on Wednesday morning or something. But um the the rabbis wouldn't let kids read it until they reached a certain age and then they were able to have the maturity to read it and and understand the doctrine that's there. Very erotic and very uh, appropriate for a husband and wife in marriage to have those kind of things spoken of. Let's look at Ezekiel 20. And uh, because this language gets employed and it gets employed in a very striking eschatological promise related to Israel and their coming kingdom. I think Ezekiel has more significance for things and it gets ignored. Daniel and others get more attention, but I tell you, Ezekiel and Isaiah, Jeremiah, all of these prophets, they've got so much to say related to the book of Hebrews and Revelation and our eschatological anticipations. All right. So Ezekiel chapter 20 and the verse that mentions the sweet-smelling savor, the soothing aroma, is verse 41. But you've got to recognize where that's sitting here. And so I'm going to back up to verse 33. I think uh, that should work. As I live, declares the Lord God. This is His vow. This is His vow to promise them a millennial kingdom. As I live, declares the Lord God. Well, he can't die, so it's a pretty good vow, right? (laughs) Surely with a mighty hand and with an outstretched arm and with wrath poured out, I shall be king over you. This is what it's going to take. It's going to require tribulation on earth to humble Israel. It's going to require a mighty hand, outstretched arm, and wrath poured out. I shall be king over you. I will bring you out from the peoples and gather you from the lands where you were scattered with a mighty hand and with an outstretched arm and with wrath poured out. And so all Israel, every Jewish person on the planet is going to be gathered together. And I will bring you into the wilderness of the peoples and there I will enter into judgment with you face to face. This is a private judgment with the Jewish people. This is before the Gentile judgment of sheep and goats that Jesus talked about. This is a private judgment of Israel because judgment begins with the house of the Lord. As I entered into judgment with your fathers in the wilderness of the land of Egypt, so I will enter into judgment with you, declares the Lord. If you think about it, when he redeemed Israel out of to Exodus, out of Egypt, he brought them through the Red Sea, he brought them into the wilderness, and he entered into judgment with them. He put them under the law. He's going to do something similar here. As I entered into judgment with your fathers, um, Verse 37, I will make you pass under the rod. I will bring you into the bond of the covenant. This is more proof that we're not in the new covenant today. The new covenant is after the tribulation. He will make a new covenant with the house of Israel, with the house of Judah, after these things, Jeremiah 31. It's not with the church, it's with Israel. And here he's, bring, he's regathering them, every Jewish person from the four corners of the earth, and he's bringing them into the wilderness to enter into judgment with them. And he's going to put them under the rod. Remember when Jacob was sorting out his sheep with a rod? The, the speckled and the spotted and the, the black and the white. and All of that's typology for this prophecy right here. And then he says, I will purge from you the rebels. I will purge from you the rebels. Just because they're racially Jewish doesn't mean they get to enter into the millennial kingdom. They're going to be exposed right here as not being saved, as not belonging to the Lord. Remember, not all Israel is Israel. And uh, every unbeliever is sent to to hell. He's going to kill them right here on the spot. They will not enter the millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ. Notice, rebels and those who transgress against me, I will bring them out of the land where they sojourn. He has to regather them because he promised. He promised to regather all Israel. He regathers every Jewish person from the four corners of the earth. He doesn't miss a single Jew. Probably be some people surprised they didn't know they were Jewish. (laughs) Ooh, what am I doing here? Might also be some people who thought they were Jewish and they're not brought. All right. And uh, I will purge the rebels. They will be gathered out because he promised to gather all Israel, but they will not enter the land of Israel. Only born-again believers will walk that holy highway and parade in that heavenly parade walking up to Zion or marching to Zion. Well, not everybody, only the believers, the unbelievers, the rebels get purged. Just like with sheep and goats. <laughs> That's the Gentile version of this. Sheep and goats on, one, on the right side and the left side. The, the, the sheep get to enter into the kingdom prepared, but the, the goats are going to the fire prepared for the devil and his angels. All right. So this is the context. I will bring them out of the land where they sojourn that they will not enter the land of Israel. Thus you will know that I am the Lord. As for you, O house of Israel, says the Lord God, go serve everyone as idols. Later you will surely listen to me. My holy name you will profane no longer with your gifts and with your idols. You understand in the millennium there's no multiculturalism. There's no plurality islam is over buddhism is over hinduism is over god will not put up with idolatry in the millennial kingdom of jesus christ for on my holy mountain on the high mountain of israel declares the lord god there the whole house of israel all of them will serve me in the land there i will accept them this is acceptable unto the lord the sacrificial language of acceptance I will accept them, and there I will seek your contributions and the choicest of your gifts with all your holy things. As a soothing aroma, I will accept you when I bring you out from the peoples and gather you from the lands where you are scattered. Israel will become living sacrifices like you and I are today. As a soothing aroma, I will accept you when I bring you out from the peoples and gather you from the lands where you are scattered. I will prove myself holy among you in the sight of the nations. See, when he completes this process, then there's no Gentile in the world that's going to have a doubt (laughs) that God is fair and he is righteous and he is just. And when he gathers the sheep and goats before him, because he's already done this with his own people, and if he will do this with his own people, sending every unbelieving Jew to, to hell, what will he not do to the Gentiles? See, that's the point. So, You will know that I am the Lord when I bring you into the land of Israel, into the land which I swore to give to your fathers. And really for the rest of this chapter it's kind of interesting. It says there you will remember your ways. There's a remembrance time for the Jews. See, there's a remembrance time. This is not the new heavens and new earth. There the the things are forgotten and not brought to mind. In the millennium things are remembered. You will remember your ways and all your deeds with which you have defiled yourselves. You will loathe yourselves in your own sight for all the evil things that you have done. And so there is a remembrance and there is a loathing. And uh, how long does that last? Boy, there's some arguments. My suspicion is it may last the whole thousand years. It's just a day. All right. They will finish their loathing when uh, the earth and heavens are destroyed and the great white throne and they enter into the uh, fullness of time. All right, well then there's uh, Ezekiel 20. The New Testament, likewise. A fragrant aroma has important New Testament significance as well, Uh, starting with Ephesians 5. I'm going to take these backwards. Ephesians 5.2. Ephesians 5 is a great marriage passage, using this with young couples as they approach their weddings. Because we've got the portrait here of Christ in the church. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her. Well this is what's described here. And in Ephesians 5, 2, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave Himself up. Notice, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. When Jesus was on the cross, He's the fulfillment of all those Old Testament sacrifices. The Father is well-pleased. He smells the sacrifice. It is an aroma that satisfies Him eternally, being the propitiation for our sin. And this is what we're supposed to do. So when we love our wives, what are we doing? As Christ loved us, gave Himself for us, it's a sweet-smelling aroma. It's a priestly function. All right, so we have it there. 2 Corinthians chapter 2. And this is the text that Faso was highlighting last week and on his previous visit with us as well. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 14 through 16. And this is uh, marvelous. This is a, a, a pretty straightforward way to teach it, it's really obvious to see as it talks about our aromas, 2 Corinthians 2.14. And this is purely church-age application here. It'll be Israel's application in the millennium, but for now it's ours. Thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ. You can study what a Roman triumph is and what a Caesar could expect when he came back victorious from battle and the, the great triumph through the streets of Rome. And you have your slaves in front of you that you took in the warfare. You have your booty, the gold, the treasure, the plunder, the perfumes, all the great smells that come with a triumph. Always leads us in triumph in Christ and manifests through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of Him in every place. We get to be the conduit of God's aroma. We get to be that sweet-smelling savor. We get to be that sweet aroma and it's manifesting through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of Him in every place. So everywhere the Christians go, everywhere the believers go with the knowledge of God, everywhere we go with Bible teaching, everywhere we go to plant a lampstand, where the knowledge of God is manifest through born-again believers, it is a sweet-smelling savor. It is a sweet aroma. For we are a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are the being-saved ones and among those who are the perishing ones. So we've got believers and unbelievers right here in this verse. And amongst believers and unbelievers, it's us that smell good. To the one, an aroma from death to death. Ooh, that's nasty. To the other, an aroma from life to life. How can the same thing smell two different ways, right? It either smells good or it smells terrible. Well, depending on your perspective, this smells marvelous to God, but to the perishing ones, that's a horrible smell. They don't like that smell at all because that's a smell they don't have. It's a smell they recoil from, like they recoil from the light. They they prefer the darkness. Their deeds are evil. They recoil from the great smell of Christ because they prefer their own stench of Darkness. All right, so it's the same aroma. Smells great to God, and smells great to us. We love the way we smell. <laughs> the unbelievers don't love the way we smell. That's the point. And who is adequate for these things? The Bible here talks about adequacy in chapter two and chapter three. Adequates, of, adequate servants of the new covenant in three six. And uh, all the things that come in here. All right. So we have the fragrant aroma. Tremendous Old Testament and New Testament significance. An acceptable sacrifice. It go, often it goes with the fragrant aroma. Typically these terms get doubled up. Like they're doubled up today in Philippians. They're doubled up often in the Old Testament. In addition to being a fragrant aroma, it is an acceptable sacrifice. What does it mean to be Acceptable. And in some respects, I don't know, acceptable is, I don't like the word acceptable, <laughs> you know, that's just my own quirk. Um, you know, I mean, acceptable, it's like on a report card, you know, don't you want excellent or outstanding? I mean, if, if, if the best the teacher could write down is acceptable to me, that's like, well, okay, he barely scraped by, he didn't, I didn't fail him at least, you know, he's acceptable Anyway, that's just my quirk. Um, Maybe you love the word acceptable, but the idea of acceptable to God means it's a delight. An acceptable sacrifice is a delight that it is well-pleasing to God. Yes, it's acceptable because He delights in it. He accepts it. He's thrilled to have it. He receives it and He draws it close. He embraces it closely. An acceptable sacrifice is a delight well-pleasing to God. And we've actually, uh, for those of you that are uh, regulars on Wednesday mornings, we've had this repeatedly in our Proverbs series, Uh, but we'll start with Leviticus 22 and we'll show you this here and then we'll see the rest of those in Proverbs. Well-pleasing to God. If it's acceptable, it's a delight. It's well-pleasing. Remember with Cain and Abel, uh, he did not have regard for Abel's offering, but for, uh, for Cain's offering, but for Abel's offering he was well pleased. He was delighted. An, an acceptable sacrifice is a delight, well pleasing to God. So Leviticus 22 in verse 21 I guess backing up to verse uh, 17. The Lord spoke to Moses saying speak to Aaron and to his sons, to all the sons of Israel and say to them any man of the house of Israel or the aliens in Israel who presents his offering, whether it is in any of their votive or any of their free-will offerings which they present to the Lord for a burnt offering for you to be accepted, it must be a male without defect, from the cattle, from the sheep, or from the goats. The point is don't cheat God, don't uh, bring a defective animal, don't bring you see a defective animal's got a got a blemish, it's got an injury, it's got a problem. Uh, it's sick, uh, in which case, uh, you know, you wouldn't want to eat it. It's not healthy, in which case you wouldn't want to breed it. You wouldn't want it to replicate its problems. Um, you understand why a carnal person would want to get rid of something like that and say, well, I can't eat it anyway. Let's just give it to God. <laughs> you know, it's not really useful to me. Let's just take it to the temple, let God take it, right? I mean, think about it. Think about you know, other donations to the church or other things. Well, I can't use it anymore and it's kind of broken down and falling apart. Here's this, you know, this old beater pickup truck. Let's, maybe the church wants it, you know, because I don't have a use for it anymore. Wow. There's an attitude for you. God says, no, if it's got one blemish, I don't want it. It has to be a picture of Jesus Christ. He was sinless. He was perfect. All right. Whenever, whatever has a defect, you shall not offer. It will not be accepted for you. It's not well-pleasing. When a man has, offers a sacrifice of a peace offering to the Lord to fulfill a special vow or for a free will offering of the herd or of the flock, it must be perfect to be accepted. There shall be no defect in it. So this is the language of perfection, the language of acceptance. And this is our blessing too in the church age. We are perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect. We're commanded to be perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect. Likewise, verse 29 talks about the same thing. When you sacrifice the sacrifice of thanksgiving to the Lord, you shall sacrifice it so that you may be accepted. And we have the issues there. All right. Now, the idea in Proverbs, though, takes this priestly language of acceptance and then brings it across to our delight. Starting with Proverbs 11.1. 1. Our delight. A false balance is an abomination to the Lord, but a just weight is His delight. So using the same kind of language that will be applied to sacrifices. Sacrifices that are well-pleasing. Sacrifices that are acceptable. Your business life is either pleasing to God or rejected by God. When He smells how you conduct your business, do you have just weights? or Are you cheating? Are you... uh, cheating on your taxes? Are you, have you uh, monkeyed with your uh, uh, scales? You know, you go into the gas station and you thought you bought 10 gallons and you, you really bought 9.6 because the attendant there has monkeyed with the thing and he's, he's skimming the profits on that. A false balance is an abomination to the Lord, but a just weight is His delight, well-pleasing, acceptable As a sacrificial language before God. Chapter 12 and verse 22. Lying lips are an abomination to the Lord, but those who deal faithfully are his delight. God puts truth telling on par with murder, right? Lying is on par with murder. When he puts murderers and liars in the same context, we don't do that. We we yeah we agree murderers are bad but come on lying I mean everybody lies I mean there's helpful lies there's little white lies there's good lies yeah does this dress make my you know there's <laughs> <laughs> we have this carnal mind that thinks that, well, lying is not as bad as murder, obviously. God says it is. All right? Because when you lie, you're serving your father the devil. It is He was a liar from the beginning. He was a murderer from the beginning. Whenever he speaks, he speaks a lie. For he is, by nature, the liar and the father of lies. He was also a murderer from the beginning. Read John chapter 8 sometime and go through that and see. God is the God of truth. Jesus Christ is faithful and true. We serve the God of truth. And so truth is His delight. Those who deal faithfully. Uh, Chapter 15 and verse 8. Yeah, this guy's pretty practical. You've got your business life in here. You've got your uh, truthfulness in here. Your integrity. Your prayer life, Proverbs 15.8, the sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord, but the prayer of the upright is His delight. Why are the wicked sacrificing anyway? (laughs) You know, they're wicked. Why do they even offer a sacrifice? Why do they think they have any kind of standing before God and why do they bring things to present their case before? Why did Cain bring vegetables anyway? He's not saved. What does he think he's doing? What do the unbelievers do when they worship? Why are unbelievers so religious? Why are atheists so religious? That's that's even funnier. All right. So again, this is a good verse too because it really shows the juxtaposition of tolvah of the abomination with the ratzon, with the delight. Finally, chapter sixteen, of verse thirteen. Righteous lips are the delight of kings, and he who speaks right is loved. The benefits there. Alright, so well-pleasing is a delight. An acceptable sacrifice is a delight, well-pleasing to God. And this is what Paul said the Philippians had done. The Philippians had sent a gift to Paul while he was in prison and that's only in the earthly realm that they were sending money from Philippi to Ephesus and Epaphroditus was the courier, right? That's, that's all in earthly terms. In spiritual terms, they were offering up a, well, a, uh, a sweet, soothing aroma, well-pleasing, acceptable to God. Acceptable to God. And that's our delight as well. Then he says, I am having been plerao and my God will plera'o every need of yours. Here's an adjusted translation for you of verses 18 and 19. Let me get my Bible back to Philippians 4. My God will supply all your need. That's, that's how it's rendered. My God will plerao every need of yours. And that plerao is the corollary to the plerao we have in verse 18. The same verb. It's used both both verses. It's used in verse 18 when he says, I have been made full, I have been filled, or I have been amply supplied. And so, um, actually it's not, I kind of like the way they they, they did this because they used supplied in verse 18 and supply in verse 19. My God will supply all your needs in verse 19. And that is employing the same English expression, I am amply supplied from verse 18. So that's good. They use supplied and supply there in the, in the back-to-back verses. However you translate it, you've got to use something similar from verse 18 to verse 19. And if it's going to be filled, keep it filled. I have been filled, and my God will fill you. Now what was Paul filled with, though? Didn't we answer that a few minutes ago? He was filled with the fruit of righteousness. Right. So what's the Father going to fill the Philippians with? Okay? See, people abuse this when they say, my God will supply all your needs, and they claim it, name it and claim it like a prosperity theology gospel or something, and they say, I, I'm supposed to be filthy rich. God wants, you know, because God said I will supply all your need. Well, wait a minute. What's he supplying? What was Paul supplied with? What's God going to supply? And what is your need anyway? Maybe you don't need to be filthy rich. <laughs> Maybe that's the worst thing. That's the last thing you need. Most of us can't handle that. And God knows that. So He will supply, He will play Ra'o, He will fill every need. The promise of God's faithful provision, notice though, is connected to the Philippians' faithful provision. God's play Ra'o is linked to the Philippians' play Ra'o, just grammatically syntactically that's the that's the truth of this of this passage and i believe it's the truth of this principle that you can't sever that and then hold god and say well you have to supply well what have you been supplying okay if you haven't been supplying anything why do you expect god will be supplying that violates what this verses what these two verses together are saying You might recall, not the first time we've, we've crossed this uh, issue in Philippians. We have this issue in Philippians um, notice, remember um, where did we have this? We have the, uh, the emphasis on prayer. And the emphasis on being anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgivings let your requests be made known. And then it says, what does it say? The peace of God that surpasseth understanding, right? So, why do you expect that that's going to be fulfilled if you're disobeying the imperative to be anxious for nothing? That they're linked, they go together. You cannot separate them. And so, um, I think. Uh, so yeah, there it is. It's in chapter four, verse six, followed by verse seven, right? Verse six says, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Verse seven is a follow-up to verse six. It's conditioned, conditional, contingent upon verse six. If we're living in flagrant violation of verse six, in other words, If we're anxious all the time and not praying about it, not faith resting, not giving it to Jesus Christ, well then shock of all shocks, don't don't be surprised when you don't have that peace of God that surpasseth all understanding. Because the Father promised it to you as a consequence of this kind of prayer life. Likewise my God will supply all your need. I think too many people just take that verse as an absolute guarantee as if my God will supply your need. Sits all by itself. It's a whole chapter all by itself. Just there it is. We're going to call this Philippians chapter 5. It's the only verse in that chapter. There it is. It just sits there all by itself. It does not sit there all by itself. And I think many of these other passages we're going to look at will, will bear this principle out. And so, um, yes, my God will plerao, every need of yours. But that comes after it says, um, I have been amply plerao I have been plerao And my God will Rao all your needs. See? So functionally, this is what happens. No believer suffers when they are giving of themselves to edify other believers. That God, is, that you are going to profit. You are going to be eternally profited. You are going to be filled. The fruit of righteousness will be returned to you. God will fill you with the fruit of righteousness because you have filled others with the fruit of righteousness. All right, we're going to come back to this. I think uh, this is significant. So Wednesday night, yes, Wednesday night, when we come back to this, possibly. Um, My dad's kind of day to day. So uh, if I'm not here on Wednesday, uh, if Warren is filling in for me, then uh, that's where I'll be. But otherwise, Lord willing, rapture pending, other things. Uh, we'll be here Wednesday. We'll come back to this idea. We'll talk about this faithful provision. We'll see the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. And uh, well, what if I do want? Uh, what, what happens then in, uh, in God's faithful provision? All right. Thank you, Father, for this day, for your truth, for your faithfulness. We ask uh, that you would take hold of the information that we've studied and make it real, Father. Make it more than information. Make it the full knowledge and the wisdom and the insight that you've designed it for. Might it dwell richly within each one of us that it might spring forth and bear fruit 30, 60, and 100 fold. Father, uh, I pray that each one of us here today will receive the word implanted that is able to save our souls. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.